Are you excited about fusion energy? No. You don't like it? No. Look, here's the thing. I don't want to be like party pooper. Okay, well. But like I said, you know, call me in 10 years when this is commercially viable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I fully, you have no idea how many times women have said that to me. And every <laughs> time just... I do call them and then they're like, I met you when I was 18. Why are you calling me at 28? I just think that the papers are gassing up, you know, the good old boys in Bay Area or whatever that are working on this tinkering. Mm -hmm. They're always tinkering out there. And first of all, we knew this was like less than a year away, like a year ago. So spoiler alert, we, we already knew. Yeah. For people paying attention at home. Totally knew. Yeah. We already knew. For Second sure. of all, it's still not it's not gonna be it's not like it's gonna do anything for us for like 10, 15 years. So what are they saying it's gonna do? There's gonna be like power and such? Yes, it's going to be power and we such. We fully already have that. We do, yes. It's going to be cheaper? Mm, cheaper, greener, cleaner, better, bigger. Sounds fake. I can't wait for crypto guys to get into it. Uh, that's the thing is, if there's unlimited free cheap power, yes, which is something I made up. I don't know if that's actually correlated to what you're talking about. Mm. But uh, won't that make Bitcoin too easy to make? Here's my thing. Uh -huh. What if we could combine like a sort of solar city-esque project? Love this. With fusion power, uh -huh. uh, cryptocurrency, and chatbots. What? 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 What if? <laughs> well, I think we've got Elon's next company. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you hear it here first. Elon Musk is gay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, welcome to Sexuality Hour. <laughs> what? That's, you're not doing the spinoff? Oh, it's the St. Louis episode. What's your name? My name? Funny you should ask. Brace Belden. <laughs> I'm Liz. Of course, we are joined by producer Young Chomsky. And Liz, let me tell you, I am fresh off watching Son of a Woman. First of all, hello, everyone. Welcome to Turn On. Hello. Second of all, I cannot believe you've never seen that movie. And what a weird movie to watch now. Son of a Woman. At all. Two and a half hours long, Son of a Woman is. Yeah. God, and this man <laughs> sniffing him out left and right. For those of you who don't know, Al Pacino plays a character blind as a fucking bat. Mm. Guy can't see shit mm. in a grenade accident, which only took out your eyesight. Okay. Yeah, that never made sense to me either. He was just juggling grenades. Yeah. Anyways, he's 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 doing that thing. You know how check? I mean, well, I don't want to get too crazy about, it, but I'm doing it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Um. So he can't see shit. Horny as the day is long. Well, yeah, it is Pacino. But I was like, I, you know, Pacino, I've seen him horny before, right? I've seen him horny in lots of different circumstances. But this is if they took the guy, just the scene from Heat where he's like, she got a great ass. And they made that a movie about that mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fucking insane. I don't think it's a very good movie. Uh Yeah, I was shocked to learn how critically acclaimed it was. Well, they didn't know what, they didn't know what. What was going, going on? on? Did it have like other movies back then? I don't know. Was 92? Was that the year? 92. Mm. Imagine being imagine being some shock 
It's an election year. No one knew what was going on. Yeah, but you're in the Soviet, former Soviet Union, Ugh. right? Shock doctrine. Your your company's been taken over by gangsters. You're starving. It's cold. And you're like, but silver lining, we get American, American culture. And then you go and watch that, and you're like, what the fuck is? Yeah. At one point, he's like, he's explaining to this high school student, which okay, it's cool, and he doesn't. I know, okay. But uh, he's explaining to this high school student on a first class flight from Boston or whatever, New Hampshire to fucking New York. He's like, ah, some women's legs are like a Greek column. Some women's legs are like a secondhand Steinway, which I'm gonna bring out some big legs. He's like, it doesn't matter what the legs are like. If you if you part them in between, it's paradise. That's a crazy thing to say. You crazy? Some women's legs are like Greek call. That's your all, two options. First of all, saying, talking about parting legs is fucking disgusting. It's nasty as Very hell. Gross. And also, don't say that to a high school student. Paradise? Also, I just say I think that it's crazy to pay for a first class. Class, class ticket, ticket from New Hampshire to New York. Well, that is a very quick flight. He he wanted also to probably travel a regional style. jet, and so you're not going to be bu- getting shuttle. Yeah, you're not going to yeah. be getting the kind of service that you would on a you know transatlantic or you know across the country. I want to I want to sort of push back on 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 him there too. Is a man of his age in that time period, right? Mm. In this like fifties, I think Pacino was fifty two when he recorded when he filmed that movie. Which for Pacino, very young, very young. Guys like that were crazy about legs. They loved well, gams. I will say that, yeah, legs were big. Well, you got you had boobs and legs. That was the kind of like yeah. 80s to 90s moment, mm-hmm. right? Um, kind of like a, yeah, 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 red high heel Barbie yeah. Budweiser moment, yeah. as we all remember, of course. They hated asses. Yeah. They all had kind of flat asses yeah. with those hot, yeah. Anyway. Really crazy. Now, I will say I'm going to, you know, I don't, if we're, we'll cut this if it's saying too much. No, we keep this in. Brace, you're a leg guy. Crazy about it. I want to be clear here. I don't want to do nothing to the legs, right? Like, I, like I'm not like trying to like get in there or whatever. <laughs> like, it's like, cause like I feel like a butt guy, like a boob guy's like, I want to touch the boobs. And a butt guy's like, oh, let me use that as a pillow. Leg guy, I'm just like, you just appreciate. I'm them. just like, look at that pair of legs walking by okay, right well, here. Well, calm down. You're Pacinoing a little bit, no, but but I think that I don't say it. My here's my thing. Uh huh. Columns, mm-hmm. piano legs. Yeah. Are these the appropriate metaphors? As a as a someone who enjoys horrible it makes no sense. Horrible. Right? Greek columns, which to me are very sturdy and also indented. Yeah, indented. It's kind indented. of like, could be twisty. Twisties, yeah. I'm like, so Greek columns, very like, you got no knees. <laughs> and then the Steinway, of course, the curve of the piano. Yeah. But also massive, Texas-shaped, too much knee. Maybe he was more of a thigh guy. Th- but, but I'm telling you, but the Stein, in either of those, because... The, the Greek columns, of course, have the little tops and the little bottoms, right? right? So the thighs are like thin rectangles. Yeah, it makes no sense. Horrible. Very, yeah. And, yeah, it, it, to me it just seemed like a guy, like his character, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Slade, had, had made love one time, perhaps in the aftermath of the Korean War. And that was the greatest night of his life. And ever since then he was such an you know, unlovable jerk that no other woman would, you know, make love to him. And now he's like 52 and blind. He's like, oh, that was the greatest night of my life. I got to get back to it. It just, it seemed, it, he cut a pathetic figure. I got to say, I do appreciate how much you paid attention during the movie. I did. And you know what? I got to be honest, too, to those who've seen the movie. He pays everyone so much money at the end. He pays this kid who, by the way, he's threatened with a gun. Mm. $300. Well, it was 1992. 
I mean, that's, yeah, still. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Again. Hi. Um, we do have a real episode for you today. Very excited about that. Our old friend, Devin O'Shea. Mm-hmm. Devin Thomas O'Shea, even. He's coming back. He's coming back to talk to us about more St. Louis wait. history. However, wait, 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 wait. before we Fuck. get to that. What if they stop listening? I'm so sorry to do this, but... We have some tour dates that we need to talk about. So, uh, if at whatever the running time is now, add about forty-five minutes. Yeah. Because no, you know what? We're going to do this really quickly and efficiently, and we can even trade off, Liz. Okay. So on February second of twenty twenty-three, that is next year, the continuation of the fiscal year of the smile in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right near MIT, <laughs> at the Sinclair. <laughs> We have, and this is on the 2nd of February. I wasn't expecting it that time. We have a show uh, at the Sinclair. At the Sinclair. Yes, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is next to Boston, Mm -hmm. but is different, apparently. I look forward to figuring out why in February. We also have a show at the Sinclair in Cambridge on the 3rd. However, eh, sold out. So we'd like to see you on the second if you are in the Boston Cambridge area. Oh, we 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 the very next day we are going north of the border to go to do something that's pretty bilingual. We are playing in Montreal, Quebec at the Theater Fairmont. That's the Theater Fairmont in English. Uh, that is on the fourth of February. It will be our trip to Canada. And uh, let me tell you. Trudeau, you're through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, I, I, I saw that they were um, banning trading on margin for crypto. So, well, looks like our trip will not happen. Anyways, the the <laughs> next day, uh, the next day we are going to be in Toronto, in Ontario. However, <clears throat> sold out. You snooze, you lose. We will not be seeing you unless you already bought tickets. In which case, we shall. So. Cut by several weeks when we're recording beautiful, wonderful, true and on episodes for you to listen to until we get to December 16th of 2023. No, that is not the right month. Excuse me. February 16th of 2023. <laughs> February 16th of 2023. In Denver, Colorado, next to the, the rocky slopes of the snowy mountains uh, at the Bluebird Theater. That is still on sale. Yeah. And then literally the next day, somehow, by magic, Mm -hmm. by hook or by crook, by plane, train, and automobile, we will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the fine line on the 17th of February. And then even more very next day than that, on the actual next day following, on the 18th of February, at the Far Out Lounge. Well, it better be close in the city because, or close to the airport because we're going to be heading straight there in Austin, Texas. We are doing a show. That is going to be the cap off of that little tour, uh, Austin, Texas. And let me tell you, Liz, mm. it's going to be crazy. I mean, we've got some of the biggest tech titans in the world moving to Austin. Mm-hmm. We got Rogan, he's coming to the show. Oh, yeah. We got Lex Fridman coming to the show. Mm. Uh, and honestly, I might even be at the show. Well, that would be fantastic. One of the top tech guys in the United States. There's almost nobody with more PayPal accounts than me. <laughs> you collect them all. I collect, I got, I got so many. 
Um, no, but for real though, that's our tour. Please buy tickets. I honestly, I uh, Liz and Chauncey don't listen to this part. I've honestly been seriously considering killing myself. <laughs> oh my god, why do you say that? <laughs> No, there's. it's going to be a real fun time. We're going to the coldest places that we could think of for some reason. It was crazy. We were booking this tour. It was like, I think Raul, while we were getting ready for the other tour, and so we got these dates. We were just like, yeah, 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 yeah. And now we're like, man, that seems really cold. Yeah, I don't even think I have clothes warm enough. Well, good thing we're going up north. Or moisturizer strong enough, which catch is our, actually something that I'm concerned about. Catch ourselves a little Canada goose. My little warm, my, my poor... Skin barrier, my ladies know. Mm-hmm. If you have any tips for Canadian cold weather and the harsh climate and my skin and good solve options, I probably know all of them, uh-huh. but I would appreciate it if you hit it in the comments. I'm going full face mask. Yeah. That's oh. it. Bak- baklava. Yeah. Balaclava. <laughs> ba- baklava. No, yeah. I'm putting baklavas all over. <laughs> Little potassium. Well, that would keep it quite moist yeah. with all oh. that. Olive oil. Honestly, you guys are crazy. I have no problems keeping moist. Anyways, uh, we have with us in studio via computer, Devin Thomas O'Shea to Devin talk to us about some things. (laughs) (laughs) Starting now. Ah, 1972. This is sure going to be my year. (sighs) Can't wait to get off this Greyhound bus here in St. Louis, an industrial city that will never see population decline. I can almost see us pulling in now. In fact, I do see us pulling in now. That great, big, beautiful arch of which McDonald's got its inspiration. The steps of the bus are descending, and my soft little moccasined feet are pitter-pattering down. California was so tough. I can't believe they made me do acid in that apartment building in San Francisco while a CIA agent watched me make love to a prostitute. But here I am, finally, for my job at the good old factory here, which will never leave St. Louis. And ooh, I even have houses. Housing, in fact, that's the word, at the Pruitt Igo Housing Complex, which will never, ever be demolished. No! <laughs> Present day. Cut to two podcasters. One male shirtless. One female clothed in ball gown. Producer. Upside down. Moon boots. On the screen. Writer from St. Louis, Devin Thomas O'Shea. <laughs> Hello. Welcome back to Truanon. Our Truanon St. Louis correspondent here to talk to us about all sorts of things but about a large group of buildings, public housing projects that were demolished very famously in 1972, but built only about 17 years beforehand. And okay, fine, fair enough. There's been documentaries, blah, blah, all that stuff on that. But also talking about U.S. government chemical testing on the population of that public housing project and St. Louis at large, particularly the black and poor population. Devin, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, man, is it great to be uh, back in the recording studio? <laughs> We're so. This is the third time that you've been. You've come on. We're so yeah. excited to have you back. You have, as Brace, Brace, I gotta say, in terms of intros, that was 
very inspired. I think Thank you. one of the best in quite a while. Mm-hmm, that's I really got to give it to you for that. Free Red Bull I just drank. Yeah, I do see that on the floor <laughs> over there. Empty. Remember to take that with you when you nope. leave. Um, Devin, you have a new piece in Protein Magazine. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. It's like a Greek style protein. of protein. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it is called Pruitt Igo, a black community under the, quote, atomic cloud. And I do think Brace kind of gave away some of this. But my, my bad. before we get into what you mean when you say, quote, atomic cloud, let's start first off, Pruitt Igo. Can you explain the name of that? And what is it that we're talking about here? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, had you guys heard of Prudigo or the documentaries mm. before this? Yeah. I, yeah, I knew that I recognized the building complex. I didn't, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the name of it. But I kind of, it's a very famous controlled demolition, right? Yeah. I mean, it was on TV. Right. It was a huge thing in the 70s, like you said, 1970. You could say actually the second most famous in American history. Ooh. Um, and in fact, related <laughs> to the first. No, but uh, but no, I, I was, I'm familiar with the uh, the the contours of the story. I, I you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty famous, I guess it would be the most famous public housing project in America as a public housing project rather than like having some cultural cachet. Um, yeah. but I, I knew, I knew the general basics of the story. I hadn't seen any documentaries. You, you barely ever catch my ass watching a documentary. Yeah. Um, just the dolphin fair. sex one. Yes. Well, no, that was <laughs> lived experience, but, um, yeah, I, I knew about it a little bit. I'll say that. Yeah. I think that, uh, from sort of just my own talking to people about the article, a lot of people like, uh, are exposed to Pruidigo at college when they learn about it. And there's usually, I guess uh, the piece really is about like what Pruidigo means. And there's still a lot of debate about that, um, especially since there's a bunch of stuff that is still um, classified or, for instance, locked away in Stanford's library and they won't let anyone see it. Um, but... The gist of it is that, I mean, we got to go into the Wayback Machine and think about uh, a Midwestern city like mm-hmm. St. Louis, uh, you know, first owned by the French and then the Spanish for a brief little period. It's a city that's like older than the country itself and uh, through the Civil War stays in the Union and then a whole lot of freed slaves and um Black people who are fleeing the South end up going North, and St. Louis is a stop along the way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, industry in St. Louis at this time, at the turn of the century, that welcomes all kinds of people to work in factories and be a part of, you know, what we would know now as the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you're a guy like Harland Bartholomew, who's a city planner around this time, He's sort of like the Robert Moses of St. Louis. Uh, You are pretty convinced that St. Louis is going to become probably like bigger than New York. You know, like uh, we got a whole river. We're at the middle of the country. That just makes sense. Yeah, you got all the railroads. You got all the industry. There's two. First of all, there's two rivers here. I know, but if you're Harlan Bartholomew, a man named Harland, you know. (laughs) A man named Harlan. You're fiercely racist, but you don't really say it. Um, So uh, a problem develops in the city in the early 20th century where uh, after the war, of course, 
uh, the suburbs break out everywhere and drain yep. the tax populace into the mm-hmm. into the west of San Luis. This is like a very familiar story for basically every American city. Wait, hold on here. So prior to this even happening, though, I'm assuming St. Louis and, you know, without doing any research whatsoever on this, pretty segregated at this point. Yeah, there's like, uh, you know, a secret cabal of all of the business leaders who put on a clan uniform and crown one of their daughters, the Queen of Love and Peace every year. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and they're kind of in charge. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's elected leaders, but then there's like the veiled prophet. Um and the city is very segregated, but interestingly, what we're going to talk about as a prime example of this is Mill Creek Valley, which uh-huh. was uh, very black, but it also had a lot of bohemian immigrant communities, and there were certain parts of it that were pretty integrated, which is also where a lot of the um, communist thinkers came out of in St. Louis at the turn of the century. And yes, Wait, there were. you're talking about bohemian, like from bohemia, like they're from Germans? bohemia. Okay, yeah. yeah. There's also a pretty big population of like Jewish immigrants who are in these neighborhoods too, but as a synecdoche for racism, Mill Creek and the neighborhoods that get obliterated in order to put the interstate highways in, um, they are thought of as just black. And also in the popular imagination, falsely, they're called uh, dilapidated or blighted neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Classic. Yeah, because like if you're Harlan Bartholomew and you're looking at a big map and you got the Italians over on the hill and then you got the rich people over in Ladue and downtown and you got to draw a big interstate highway through something, you know, the black community is like, well, I guess they're going to take this one on the chin. Yeah. Um, So Mill Creek is uh, systematically destroyed and a lot of black neighborhoods like it in order for the interstates to go in. And the solution to this is the Pruitt-Igo, or part of the solution, is the Pruitt-Igo housing complex. And um, so St. Louis, you can just think of a split straight down the middle, and the north half is the black side of the city, and the southern half is the white side of the city. And at the turn of the century, there is a vibrant, gigantic black community in North St. Louis. Uh This is where, um, you know, this is where all of the St. Louis black musical culture comes from. Mm. And uh, it is basically a segregated, self-sustaining rival city Mm -hmm. in North St. Louis, in the Ville. So sort of uh, a little bit east and east of the Ville is a whole lot of sort of ash slum neighborhoods or what Harlan Bartholomew would call them ash slum neighborhoods. It's basically the most impoverished people in the city um, living in blight because the tax base has been uh, sent west. Yeah. And so this, like, I mean, it's really hard to, you guys saw, like, the pictures of Pruitt-Igo from above. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's massive. It's 33 buildings. Yeah. And each building is 11 stories tall. And they all look like sort of like white and tan dominoes all Mm -hmm. placed next to each other. And so a huge swath of North St. Louis is cleared, just completely leveled. And they build these gigantic high-rise stories, uh, high-rise public housing units, uh, which uh, did you guys ever see that 
uh, HBO miniseries Show Me a Hero. I Absolutely didn't. never. Not no. I've heard like, of it. It's like Wait. Oscar Isaac, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, it was with Oscar Isaac, right? He's He yeah. loves an HBO miniseries. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. <laughs> he's... Yeah, well, so wait, you're, you're telling me here they, they, they're right. There was this big, big black neighborhood, basically, with a bunch of, you know, a little ethnic enclaves of these Europeans, the Jews and Bohemians or whatever in there, too. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, all right, we're, we need a fucking highway to make yeah. this city, take this city to the next level. Well, these people can't do shit about it. We'll just destroy their neighborhood, put them up in these fucking big tower blocks so they're doing slum clearance basically they they did the same thing in san francisco they're like you can't live here anymore we're condemning all your buildings we're blowing all that shit up we're putting a fucking highway in and you now you got to live here Mm -hmm. and like uh sort of the thing in show me a hero or like just public housing in the mid-century overall is like it is beneficial to society if you take public housing and sprinkle it through an urban area. Yes. Right? Right. So you get a mixed income sort mm-hmm. of neighborhood. Uh, but what if we said, fuck all that, let's build a gigantic series of high-rise um, public housing units in the blackest part of the city far away from everything else. Uh, and that's what Pruitt-Igo was. So immediately where they decided to zone and put the project doomed it from the start. Mm. It doesn't make any sense to put all of the poorest people on the poor side of the city and then expect uh, gains or flourishing to happen. Yeah. Well, because also the way it's funded, right, is the local tax base. And so it becomes a kind of cycle of destruction. I mean, I think in the piece you compare it you know, to the the total difference to what happened in, in the UK when they were building mm-hmm. all the council housing, which was coming out right. of, you know, a very progressive taxation policy, which allowed for like, you know, uh, you know, just like a much more robust communities to develop and flourish over decades. Right. That obviously, since then, they've, <laughs> you know, cut into that. Right. But <laughs> it's very different from the way it was sort of conceived of as, you know, conceived of from the start with the development of Pruitt-Igo here. Yeah, and crucially in the uh, financing of the project, you know, uh, th- this is just a, a absolutely ridiculous thing to do, but the maintenance of the buildings was dependent upon rent collected from public housing, uh, like from public housing populations. So the upkeep of these gigantic um, buildings was all dependent upon like collecting rent. It's kind of just insane. Um, And also that there is a sort of local and state or local and then federal coupled funding that um, was pretty precarious as well. Mm. In the piece, you call it organized sabotage. And then you call it a clandestine site for radiological weapons experimentation, which maybe we should pivot for a second to that portion of the essay and talk a little bit about that because that's sort of, no pun intended, a bit explosive. So it wasn't (laughs) just that this public housing project was, you know, a way of kind of like wiping out and, you know, wiping out poor populations for development of a city, segregating them into one area and then like dooming them to fail, although Uh it is. Right. It's also became what I mean, you, you compare it to basically like a citywide laboratory for radioactive weapons testing. Like, can we talk about that for a second? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there's another thing that's happening in St. Louis that's pretty strange throughout the early 20th century, which is a lot of Manhattan Project shit is going down. Um, and one of the things that's becoming very... Uh, so there's like a three-prong thing to the Manhattan Project. There's the bomb and nuclear power, and then there's radiation. Mm-hmm. And you can study radiation for either chemo or as a radiological weapon. Mm. So like this comes down to how do we take the deadly effects of radiation and um, put them into some sort of particulate and then spray the particulate into a trench for the atomic warfare of the future, right? Because we have to get like, I think for this portion, we're going to have to uh, put ourselves in the mind of the most paranoid Manhattan Project scientist possible Mm. and then uh, think through like, okay, a nuke is going to go off like tomorrow and I got to figure out what that's going to do to a city. (laughs) Um, So they start to develop, not in St. Louis, but in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, the first atomic cloud studies. And... Mm. um, yeah, they get off to sort of a rocky start um, with the Minnesotans. Uh, this is from Dr. Martino Taylor's book, Behind the Fog, which documents all of this. Um, but the purpose of the studies was for the Army researchers to release and then measure a cloud travel of mm-hmm. the uh, radiological material and engage in penetration studies inside of residences and buildings such as the aging brick structures of Clinton Elementary School in Minneapolis. Mm. So, so what you're saying here is like they're test. They, they they basically need to test if a the brick wall of an elementary school like how much radiation that'll keep out. Right. Yeah. Because uh, if a bomb goes off, how many of these kids are gonna yeah. be able to duck and cover their way out? Right. Of um, and the answer we know now is like, uh, no. Let's. That's going to be bad. True not true not tip here. I'm telling you, nuclear bomb goes off, you're dead. <laughs> this they didn't is what know I'm this back this is a, then. No, I, I know, but I, or they did know, but they didn't tell people. My funky ass remember, could tell you immediately. Like if I see a mushroom cloud in the distance, under the desk, no, I'm going. I'm I'm making peace with my maker. My mom lived in Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh-huh. and she had constant, like, almost every day, like, similar, when I was a kid, we had earthquake drills. Oh, yeah. Obviously in San Francisco, big earthquake town. Yeah. But she had, like, missile drills, and so they would say, okay, in the event of Russia launching the the bomb, this is what you do, and it was just duck and cover under the desk. It was very similar to the earthquake yeah. drill, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was also, we, we actually also just ducked and covered. But that makes more sense, because uh, land Yeah, you know, you get away from the... Yeah. You know, the glass breaking. Yeah. I mean, I guess, did you guys ever hear of the Demon Core before this? Yes, which I have to say, it's been a second since I learned about Demon Core. I mean, I don't remember when I learned about that a long time ago, but best name ever yeah, for, and I mean, I got to say, I know those, you know, whatever, those guys that were running whatever they were doing out in Los Alamos, like they had, they were doing some freaky deaky shit. Of course they mm-hmm. would come up with a name called Demon Core, right. but, and I don't support those fellas. 
However, well, no. I do think that they they were onto something. With this I'm scene. telling you, I the the, the the guys come into the cafeteria and they're like, "Brace, we made a demon core." I'm like, "Can I touch it?" So yeah. I don't. All those guys that like touched it and shit, I don't really blame them because like, you gotta let me touch. I the don't demon think we core, know the man. full story of like what happened there. There's like you know a couple no. couple stories that are like, "Oh, he was like building around it. He was doing all this thing." I was like, "I think he's just touching it." Devin, weird. hit us with the demon core. Well, yeah, this might help us get into that uh, Manhattan Project mindset uh, where there's a guy, I'm, I'm probably going to miss a couple of the details here, but uh, the Demon Corps like, killed a couple scientists before this guy got a hold of it. And his whole thing was like, if you have a piece of uh, uranium, basically, and you cap it so that the whole thing is contained, that's what sets off a nuclear bomb, basically. Yeah. If it, there's no pressure release. And so he was doing these experiments where he would sort of bare hand a cap on top of the demon core that's implanted in a table. And then, you know, he was trying to get like the smallest crack possible in order to like measure the radiation levels coming out of it. And he was sort of at like the end of this round of laboratory experiments. So there's like 14 of his buddies in the room with them. And they were like, damn, Steve, you're so good at this. And he's like, yeah, man. And then, of course, the cap slips and it covers the uranium and a giant blue flash erupts like out of nowhere in reality, like magic. Um, and it blinds everybody and he has to like slap the cap off of uh, the table. Slapping caps. <laughs> he's slapping caps off the table. You're just slapping caps. And then he's like, well, that was it. I'm probably dead. And everybody yeah, and... ran out of the room. Yeah, he was. And he was like yeah. a week later, uh, but everybody he made everybody come back into the room and mark. <laughs> he had everybody come back into the room and then mark where they were, and then they measured the distance between the demon core and the guy, and then they were like, "Okay, you got ten years to live, but because Dan was in the back of the room, he's got like forty years to live." This is another true and on tip. Stand in the back. Yeah, they're messing with the, the demon core. Stand in the back. Or you know what I mean? Get out of the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this right now. Don't mess around with uranium, okay? Unless no. you're selling yeah. it to a warlord or like maybe transporting it in between. Two no, governments. if you're a middleman, different. You can middleman the uranium. Don't be the guy yeah. who has the. But also, the middleman right. is just all you're doing is setting up the contractors. Ah, uh, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? You're not actually you don't physically moving the it as the like you know waste stop. Don't be the waste stop. Be the middleman. Exactly. The contractors. Yeah, highly agree. Um, so that's like a way of maybe just trying to wrap our heads around the very early scientific minds at work with nuclear power and. Yeah, these people were fucking crazy. Yeah. At 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 one end they were like in awe and you got Robin Robert Oppenheimer saying, mm. like, I am become death. Right. And like but then on the other hand you got a guy with a screwdriver, you know, messing with um a nuclear core. So I think those two things are related actually. Mm -hmm. But yes, I agree. Yeah. I mean this yeah. <laughs> brings us to a guy that you talk about a lot in the piece, Phil Layton. Phil Layton. Who out of Stanford, who I gotta say, this guy's a real asshole. Um, yeah. And we still don't know that much yeah. about what he was all up to. But a lot of his work has um, some pretty serious implications on the city of St. Louis and, of course, the Pruitt-Igoe complex. 
Yeah, there were uh, some hiccups in Minnesota because uh, the army went around to a bunch of the neighborhoods and said, hey, we're going to be spraying some stuff and you need to be cool about it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I got to be honest with you. I'd be like, I don't think I want you to do that at my place. But that's what they said. The residents were really upset about it. Yeah, they were kind of pissed. Like, what are you doing? What what do you mean you're going to be... Driving trucks billowing luminous powder into my neighborhood. Totally. And when push came to shove, there was like a little story about like, well, we might be coming up with like a cloud that's going to be able to cover an entire city and hide it from Russian bombers. So that's kind of what we're up to. So I'm Uh, sorry. They were telling people that they were releasing from the backs of vehicles and from like little sent like um, stations on top of some buildings and stuff, they were uh-huh. releasing chemicals that would create an artificial cloud. Right. The purpose Harmless of artificial cloud. Mm. The purpose of which was to literally hide the city from mm-hmm. uh, from high flying Russian nuclear bombers. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a Simpsons episode, actually. <laughs> Do you think yeah, anyone like was the like, dome or whatever? Uh, can you imagine arguing with your neighbor that thinks they're actually going to do the cloud thing? He's like, no, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, like this guy in a fucking military uniform said they're bu- making a cloud. And that's because the Russians, I that's feel like, would I feel just nowadays when I talk about chemtrails, see the giant city sized mm-hmm. cloud. And I would just fucking drop that motherfucking nuke right in the middle of it. Yeah, it just goes through cloud. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Nuke penetrates cloud so easy. Yeah. Talk, you don't need a penetration study it's for just, that. Yeah. I that's mean, true. It doesn't make sense. So th- this was the ostensible reason they were going around telling people. Yeah, and uh, the Minnesotans, to their credit, uh, sabotaged the project and made it a big deal, and they were uncool about it. Uh, and so they sent Stanford's only Philip Layton. Maybe we could get the brace noise for Philip Layton's name. All right, um, I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, and they sent him to St. Louis to design a new series of cloud experiments. And this time, they're not going to tell anybody what they're up to. Yeah, they learned a little lesson there. Learn. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so Philip Layton designs this study on purpose to be hard to understand. He has the U.S. Public Health Service release the chemicals, um, and he is part of the Army Chemical Corps as well as Stanford, so he's sort of a military scientist, you know. Um, Hybrid. Hybrid, yeah. Fusion. And I think the thing to understand about him is that he's a climber. Like, he wants to be in charge of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, he's also involved with some other things that we'll talk about, like Operation Plum Bob, which is awesome name. But it, <laughs> these are the experiments in uh, Los Alamos where mm-hmm. they set off a nuke by firing it out of a cannon into the desert and then they turn to all the military guys in trenches and say, okay, go walk into that. Yep. There's yeah. very famous like photos and videos of these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really astounding footage. I guess I'm walking into this. <laughs> I guess so. It's it's frying my intestines, but I don't know. I guess I'll just do as I'm told. So um, there's also a thing maybe to understand about Philip Layden's psychology and the military scientists of the time in that they like – all these guys, if they don't own their own phrenology calipers, they were they're the people who taught them had phrenology mm-hmm. calipers. 
Um, U.S. medical science at the time still believes that there's like a vast difference between black and white people. Uh, there's a corollary during World War One about uh, mustard gas experimentations yeah. Yeah. on troops, and they would do a troop of white people and then a black troop just to see, you know, make sure there's maybe no difference or more immunity. And that all traces itself back to slavery where, you know, the belief that black people are less susceptible to malaria or heat sickness becomes a justification for laboring them in fields until mm. they die. Um, there's also the, at the same time, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which are a horror, as are the um, experiments of injecting troops with plutonium yeah. that are happening at the same time. Yeah, you have this quote here, again, from Dr. Martino Taylor, just to describe a little bit of what this actually looked like in St. Louis, you, uh, she writes, residents in some areas of St. Louis noticed unusual activity in the days and nights throughout 1953 and into 1954. Large puffs of billowy powder were sprayed into the air by strangers in passing vehicles affixed with spray devices. The luminous powder lingered in the air behind the slow-moving vehicles. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of insane to imagine now, I mean, you know, or just like to picture, but this was obviously one of a lot of different experiments that were going on at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it was also designed to target the poorest black neighborhoods because as a uh, uh, sociologist pointed out, there's parts of the military um, outlines for this that explicitly say, if the people in the neighborhoods don't like what's going on, the police will be there to keep them in their place. Mm. Um, and so we can touch on also why St. Louis is, is, I've never heard this before, but when you think St. Louis, you're like, ah, yeah, the Moscow of America, right? I would say maybe the Moscow, Idaho of Missouri, mm -hmm. rather yeah. than the Moscow, Russia of Missouri. <laughs> right. There is, um, it's very bizarre. I've never encountered anybody saying this, but according to the U.S. Army records, you know, the tests are planned in St. Louis because we got a, a large chemical manufacturing complex, including Monsanto chemical and mm. Mallinckrodt chemical. Sure, famous. Famous. And then a large petroleum refinery in Illinois, mm. um, the Saucony Vacuum Refinery. And then there is a large steel manufacturing complex in Granite City Steel. And they were really interested in like, okay, what's going to happen to the steel machinery when an atomic bomb hits this place? Um, and they point to a Russian city called Kolpino, located in the Leningrad area on the Izora River as a corollary to St. Louis and also... Uh, Moscow, kind of. Um, and in Colpino, specifically, they point out that there is a large concentration of tall, concrete apartment buildings mm. comprising of densely populated urban areas. Mm -hmm. So I would just like to maybe point out here that, like, these tests are designed in the uh, 1960s, and 10 years previous to the designs of the test, there was no not even a plan to have large 
uh, apartment complexes built in St. Louis. Yeah. So you don't think that it's too wild to speculate that that's not a coincidence, basically? I I think that there's some other maybe details to add to mm. that, like, you know, if you see the pictures of Pruitt-Igo, they do look like Soviet block. They do. Uh, apartments for a purpose. Uh, that's like the modernist style. Mm-hmm. Um and to have them all in one area is very strange as a sociological thing. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's definitely an interesting thread to pull on, right? Because it seems like, um, yeah, I would just say that, you know, I think it's you know good to speculate and think about these things or think about how development and the choices that developers make and city planners and all of that um, coincide with larger plans for city populations and larger plans in the war machine and all of that, right? Like, it's not so much uh, this was, you know, maybe these buildings and these populations, you know, these buildings were planned and these populations were moved Mm -hmm. in order for these tests to happen, but that a lot of these interests end up kind of finding common cause as, you know, development and history kind of moves forward, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if there's ever a singular person planning any of this out, but it does seem to be a confluence of several trends. Um, so the military experiments start up in St. Louis, uh, and just like in uh, Minneapolis, there are these sprayer boxes that are outfitted to light poles. They're put on the tops of the Pruitt-Igo housing projects, which... We should point out also the name Pruitt-Igo comes from Wendell Pruitt and William Igo. Mm. Wendell Pruitt was a Tuskegee Airman, and that was supposed to represent the black side of the mm. housing development. And William Igo is a congressman from Missouri, and he was, and the white section was supposed to be named after him. Yeah, except none of the white people ever moved in. So well, there's another yeah. congressman from Missouri that I got to mention, which is Dick Gephardt, a name that I haven't heard <laughs> since I was in maybe seventh grade. But he, the only reason we know about any of this stuff is because he basically uncovered a bunch of these papers when they were declassified under the Clinton administration. And some of what we can kind of like pull out of this and what you've done a lot of work and trying to kind of figure out in your piece is what exactly were the chemicals that were being sprayed on these populations, right? Because it's only listed as in the papers that were declassified, right? It's only listed as FP2266. Right. And in those declassified papers that is referred to as a harmless stimulant. Mm, I've heard that one before from people in this very room no uh but this one is supposed to be used as a traceable chemical to measure debris from a nuclear fallout explicitly that's what fp2266 is supposed to do in the like details um but at first it's bought from new jersey zinc Mm -hmm. uh, because the mixture that is sprayed is both cadmium and zinc we know that both of those are in the mixture Cadmium is radioactive, um, so that and zinc is poisonous to inhale. Um, but FP two two six six is later bought from U.S. Radium Corp. And you know, I feel like that would give you a little bit of a hint of what yeah, it might great actually name. be. Yeah. <laughs> so 
you're saying that the product that U.S. Radium Corps produced called Radium 266 might mm-hmm. have something to do with FP 2266. Well, listen, I'm no lawyer, but, you know, inferences can be made, I feel like, here. That's true. So, yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing here is, is, is U.S. Radium Corps makes a product called Radium 266, and right. there is a unidentified substance called FP 2266 that is being used in these studies that is being purchased from U.S. Radium Corps. Yes. And Phil Bladen, in his notes about the atomic studies, spec or, uh, specifically says, hey, guys, you got to be really careful with this one thing that we're mm. buying. They had very detailed um, sanitation protocols around the sprayer mixture and FP2266. And he explicitly said that the point of the sprayer mixture is to get the material to be small enough in uh, microns, 0.75 microns, which is small enough to be deposited deep inside a lung. So <sighs> this is a uh, some real evil shit because mm. it's designed to go into a lung. That's why he wanted the mixture to be small enough. Um and Leighton knew that cadmium and zinc are poisonous to the human system. We had known that since like the 1800s. And, um, you know, he explicitly says 2266 is uh, labeled with a poison warning for a reason. And Martino Taylor also points out that the FP part of that could refer to um, fluorescent particle, which some studies say like, oh, yeah, that'll help. Uh, it'd be visible, but it could also be fallout particle, which is what mm. a lot of the Manhattan Project um, stuff refers to, uses that abbreviation for fallout particle. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So there's, so there's U.S. Army vehicles and uh, contractors being paid by the U.S. Army uh, mm-hmm. Who are setting up spray boxes, spray cars, spray whatever, a bunch of spraying devices all around the Pruett Igo housing complex, which is a giant series of rather poorly constructed towers uh, housing uh, tens of thousands of poor black residents. Yeah. Uh, I actually think that the towers were pretty well constructed for what they were. Okay. Um, but what you're thinking of is like, as we're talking about like the sprayer experiments, what's going on at Pruitt-Igo is uh, that it's in full tilt decline. That that's basically what I'm saying. Is like it doesn't like the elevate. Like you've seen or read the book High Rise, the J.G. Ballard yeah. book. Mm-hmm. I really want to read that one. Uh, it's great. But uh, the movie I didn't like the first time I saw it, and then I saw it again. I'm like, you know what? Not too bad. I haven't seen the movie. The book is fantastic. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, the as the building the building starts to decline. I mean that's a that's a huge component of the book, and it really like reading about Pruitt Igo is like oh there's some there's some similarities mm. here, but just I mean there's a, there's a description of like urine stenched elevators that 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 you write about that just like don't even don't stop at most of the floors, and you have to take the stairs where you'll get mugged or or worse. I mean it it seems pretty nightmarish at this point because. Uh, like you said, the upkeep is dependent on rent extracted from these very poor tenants. And so naturally, upkeep is is going to suffer and keep suffering. These things would compound. 
Yeah, there's a chronic problem of the elevators breaking down, the garbage incinerators would break down, and then garbage would just pile up in the hallways and catch fire. Um, And so by 1966, one of the local workers uh, reports that uh, when one drives or walks into Pruidigo, he is confronted by a dismal sight. Mm -hmm. Glass rubble and debris litter the streets. The accumulation is astonishing. Abandoned automobiles have been left in parking areas. Glass is omnipresent. Tin cans are strewn throughout. Paper has been rained on and stuck in the cracked, hardened mud. Mm. Pruidigo from without looks like a disaster area. I mean, and it was. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's like a key thing. I mean, it absolutely was because not just because of, you know, like how you call it, organized sabotage from a development and city planning point of view, but also, you know, obviously these these experiments that were being inflicted upon the population, it, it didn't stop. There was the second round that comes later on in the 60s, right? Right, exactly. There's, um, I mean, Philip Layton, uh, our man, is not exactly great at uh, designing a study mm. um, because I think, like... If anybody thinks about like trying to measure things in a scientific capacity, putting a box that sprays stuff into the air outside and then trying to measure it some mm-hmm. miles away, pretty difficult because of the wind and stuff like that. Ah, damn wind. I hate that stuff. You know that's my number one enemy is you, the wind. I always talk what? about this. My man knows. <laughs> women women hate the wind due to their yeah, hair. hair. Not only hair, skirt-like outfits, dresses Seen that. and such oh, believe nature. Seven-year itch? Oh, my God. this That was something I really hated about San Francisco was the wind tunnels. Wind oh, tunnels everywhere. Yeah. Believe me, don't get me started on big buildings and wind tunnels. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Just no, number one I, nemesis is the wind. I think that Leighton hated the wind also, but... He was on a uh, trajectory in his career that we'll talk about at the end that was, he was going to be just fine. Mm. But they went ahead and did a second round of cloud experiments. Um, And during these, they took some extra precautions to measure the dosages and to try to do like weather balloons that would sort of pick up the debris in the air. And they uh, dispersed like... I think it's one ton of material into the air over the course of two years with Pruitt-Igo being in the center, but also um, there's a bunch of public housing in the same area. And then there are also, so this is uh, a shout out to Gumby for Christ on Twitter, Mm. uh, who I helped out a whole lot with this. Um, But he points out that, uh, his relatives lived in an area near Clayton where one of the sprayer boxes was set up and they have had chronic um, cancer problems and health problems. Oh, awful. I actually was talking to somebody over the weekend uh, about this and they were saying that they lived in a similar area and have all their family has weird health problems, uh, part of North St. Louis and Mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases. Um, And the theory, or a theory, is that because the white residents never moved into Pruitt-Igo, other places had to have sprayer boxes, including Clayton, uh, which is predominantly white, um, and is also where Harlan Bartholomew retired to. 
Interesting. Um, but this is uh, Mar- Dr. Martino Taylor said she couldn't comment on that of like the design if if the design was trying to replicate those mustard gas experiments or not. Well, it's it you know it's it it does remind me we were talking about this before before recording, but of like you know where the naval yards were in in the Bay Area or like yeah. you know in, in San Francisco and Hunters Point, which is a almost entirely black neighborhood, huge cancer rates. You know, there's been all ongoing like scandals about mm-hmm. fake cleanups of the um, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of lawsuits of uh, sort of the radioactive sites and then in Treasure Island too, which is yeah. also home to, uh, I think now they're like trying to build like wineries and stuff on it. But, uh, you know, for, for most of, you know, my memory has been, uh, has been public housing. Also, you know, radioactive in some parts, you know, high cancer rates, things yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, um, I think that a big thing or a reason to talk about Heartland Bartholomew and Pruodigo and the sprayer experiments is to understand that the north side of St. Louis is, if you go there now, extremely dilapidated. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the buildings there, if they haven't fallen down on their own, they are sometimes burned down, um, sometimes by developers who just don't want to pay the cost to yeah. knock them down. Um, the, People who are born on a certain on the north side of Del Mar just have everything stacked against them, and they live in sort of this um, this community that's been trying to hold itself together for like a century, and has all of these things stacked against it, including just like straight up government conspiracies to poison everyone, um, and then. And so this is also my like biggest sticking point about Pruodigo is that mm. the most famous part of it is the demolition in 1972, which comes after, you know, we should note a really incredible rent strike that breaks out in 1969 because of the insane conditions inside Pruodigo, but it comes too late. And in 1972, the housing authority uh, demolishes the first three buildings on national television and the popular media interpretation of this, which persists today. I've heard friends tell me this shit before of, um, the people who lived in Pruitt-Igo didn't respect the place they lived in. Yeah. That the reason that it fell down and fell apart is their fault. Um, and that's just fucking bullshit. Uh, it's one of the most infuriating, persistent myths about Pruodigo. It's sort of why the documentary is called the Pruodigo myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the national news agrees. And it, this is a big reason why in the American consciousness, every time public housing comes up, people want to point to Pruodigo and say, this is what happens when you give poor people nice things is that they destroy them, you know, that they're unable to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, it's surprisingly persistent, I think. Yeah. 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 So, uh, that's the demolition and that area is now an overgrown forest, but, um, maybe we should talk about the architect now. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think that's a good idea, but I also, I, I do want to say like, it's, it's sort of astounding because I mean, Pruitt Igo lasted for about 17 years, right? Right. From from around you know 
55 ish to about 1972. And which is not a long time at all, right? Yeah, you I was be, about to say. You could be born in Pruitt, Igo, and then by the time your house was destroyed, you wouldn't even be able to buy a pack of uh, Pall Mall cigarettes. And it's just, I mean, the the amount of money that it costs to build these things, I mean, I think I think you note in the notes here that it almost about half, the equivalent of about half a billion dollars today. Right. I mean, it's it's truly extraordinary. And then just like absolutely destroyed. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's like it had it didn't have any use anymore, right? I mean, that's like what I think is so infuriating, like you say. I mean, it's like, you know, this, this um, – I mean, I just keep going back to that that quote from you, organized sabotage in a clandestine site. Like, it outlived its usefulness, whether it was for um, the purposes of, like, wrangling and managing poor residents or, uh, like, corralling black population into one area away from developer interests or it was for, like, insane radiological weapons experiments, right? It had no... And so what was the... You know, the only choice was to demolish it and tear mm-hmm. it all down and make a big show of it on national television, you know? Again, so many beautiful um, interests intersecting right at one point, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to uh, understate how, like, in the local media, you know, in the last years before the demolitions, Pruitt-Igo is a uh, giant, a persistent metaphor of just, like, it's so bad up there that the police won't even enter the buildings. Right. That they made, the towers actually made for very good, um, like, drug trafficking places because you could stand a guy on the roof and he could see a cop car coming from like four blocks away. And so it, it in the, it became like a literal monster in the yeah. local public imagination. Yeah. You know, it wasn't blown up with a nuclear bomb, but you know, there's something to be said about it all kind of coming full circle there. Right. Yeah. The, if you watch the demolition footage, I mean, it does, it is a giant ash cloud that erupts out of the bottom of the building and engulfs the whole thing. Um, which is kind of strange, uh, or has a lot of similarities with the sprayer experiments. And then some of the other stuff that, uh, Minoru, uh, Yamazaki designed. So Minoru Yamasaki was the architect of the Pruitt-Igo buildings. And actually, a you know, fairly, very famous architect in his own right. But I believe who is most known for designing the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. Mm. Beacons um, of democracy. Exactly. And as uh, I'll call it as well. And uh, I got to be honest with you, the guy has not had an extraordinary amount of luck in keeping his building standing. No. Of the, like... Seven biggest projects. Three of them have exploded. Um, I think if you're, yeah, if you're an architect, that's like the last thing you want on your CV. You don't want your guys blowing up like that. Like, oops. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of insulting, you know. Unless that's what he was intending. I mean, as it was pointed out by uh, Boltzmann Booty on Twitter. Uh, from a Slate article, uh-huh. Yamazaki was a favorite designer of the Bin Laden family's patrons, the Saudi royal family, and a leading practitioner of an architectural style that merged modernism with Islamic influences. I'm always saying that about the World Trade Center I, that it merged, you know, architect, you know, it merged modernism with 
Islamic influences. Frankly, to me, Prude Igo yeah. is in both is, life and death. Uh, you know, some of my favorite things in the world are what I like to call East meets West, mm. right? Sure, and fusion. To me, yeah, fusion, absolutely. I, 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 I mean, you, I've been called the Godfather of fusion in my own time, mm. but Prude Igo to me, I mean, it really, it's like, it's like, it's honestly, it's Mecca meets Manhattan. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's nice. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that quote means. I, you know, I'm no architecture guy. Hell, I don't really like buildings that much. Mm. But uh, I, uh, I don't really see that in several in in, in the the buildings that I've seen from the guy. Yeah, yeah especially when we're talking about Prudigo and then the thing next, which is the Military Personnel Record Center in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it seems like he's more of a modernist. I looked into that and the Islamic influences are like arches at the doorways and sort of flourishes around some of the spare edges of the design. I'm not sure. Mm. Well, you mentioned the Military Personnel Records Center. That's another building of his that does not exist anymore. Uh, So the other building in St. Louis that uh, Yamazaki designed was uh, Lambert Airport, made famous by Up in the Air, uh, the 2011 rom-com with George Clooney, but also the uh, U.S. military's uh, personnel record center in St. Mm. Louis, which one year after the Pruitt-Igo Towers began being demolished, uh, burst into flames and burned for... Uh, 22 hours, smoldering for two days and destroying about 16 million to 18 million official military personnel records. Good God. Well, that's unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, Um, How did that happen? Well, uh, there's some debate about whether or not the fire was electrical or maybe there were just a lot of people smoking a lot of cigarettes and the sixth floor mm, those damn um, palm malls palm yeah but that's where the fire the fire broke out on the sixth floor and as dr martino taylor notes uh yamasaki insisted that the sixth floor have modern um uh sprinkler systems and the mm-hmm. department of defense weirdly pushed back against that um so mm. then a fire broke out and 80% of the losses were from Army personnel discharged between 1912 and 1960, which is basically both world wars yep. and Korea. Mm, yeah, not a big time for U.S. military history. Yeah. Not a lot going on. Yeah. And there was something on the sixth floor called the Sixth Floor Vault, which contained the Navy file for the Greek Prime Minister Andreas Papandaru, is that how you say that? I think it's Papandrew. Papandrew, uh, as well as Hitler's nephew, mm. uh, William Patrick Hitler's yes. military and, records were destroyed. Not only Hitler's nephew, but U.S. Army veteran and Life magazine op-ed mm. writer. Mm. Interesting. Oh, yeah, William, William Hitler! I got to tell you, playing stickball with Willie Hitler back in, in St. Louis, fucking. 41 when before we even knew what would happen. I mean, just some of those are some of the best years of my life. Absolutely. Just comradely on the field, having a good time. My first kiss was William Hitler, actually, <laughs> at the barracks. It was, it was, I mean, the man can French. Good God. Yeah. But Damn. unfortunately, now records of the incident gone. Totally gone. 
But yeah, I mean that's 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 pretty extraordinary. All of the I mean, millions of military records lost in a uh, this giant fire on a sixth floor of a building where mm. the DOD insisted there was no sprinklers put in. D- yeah, designed by the same guy as the Pruitt Igo complex and the World Trade Center. Very interesting. Hmm. Very strange. There's one last thing we should mention before we kind of wrap this up, which is. Um, you know, you mentioned it in your piece, and I just as a kind of like little piece of history for some people out there that might not know about it, is the baby tooth survey, which gave us some insight, a little bit more insight into the ramifications of some of the radiological cloud mm-hmm. experiments that were going on, you know, in St. Louis and in other places in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, like, uh, so... This came up in sort of the papers like 10 years ago where, you know, we can all imagine ourselves. We're out at the Bush Nature Reserve. Uh, It's late at night and we are uh, breaking into the uh, Tyson Research Center, which is a former DOD ammunitions bunker that is now owned by Washington University, who have a lot of buildings named after veiled prophets. Um, but it's a environmental research station now in a storage area and we go down the steps and it's very spooky down there. And then we open a filing cabinet and there's 300,000 baby teeth just, I'm sorry, what? Just right there. Sorry. Wait, wait, hold on. Sorry. 3,000, 300,000, excuse me, 300,000 baby teeth. It's a couple of baby space. I know, but how much space do you think that would take up? Well, maybe it's like the first drawer of many. Like you keep opening all the drawers and they're all full of baby teeth. Yeah, yeah. That would be <laughs> increasingly Or alarming. like you kind of like knock down one box and all of these baby teeth kind of like come out. And then it's like yeah. it's a domino thing, sort mm-hmm. of like a Pruitt Igo sort of controlled demolition thing. But instead of a cloud, it's like <sighs> baby right. teeth. That's a all... fucking nightmare, I gotta say. That's a nightmare image for me. You know what, you know what my brain like is teeth. thinking? Well, I find those baby teeth. Mm. I'm opening up an Etsy store. Oh, yeah. Immediately. Earrings, necklaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very Portland. Yeah. So uh, the point of the baby teeth, uh, uh, well, these baby teeth were rediscovered suddenly after decades of neglect. Um, they weren't actually all loose in a drawer somewhere. They were all filed away. Um, but uh, in the middle of the sprayer experiments, there was a secondary unrelated um, study sort of done by the Rand Corporation, but executed by a local entity in St. Louis, which was the baby tooth survey. Mm. And a bunch of scientists from Washington University asked everybody in the St. Louis region, all the mothers to send us your baby teeth, you know, don't worry tooth about it. Tooth fairy's so mad. Tooth fairy's like, God damn exactly. it. Mm-hmm. Instead of a dollar, they gave you like a little pin that said, I gave my tooth to science. Well, that's actually where the Tooth Fairy um, takes your teeth. Yeah, Tooth Fairy to actually the, works the, for Rand, Rand Corp. Corporation. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> that's what I'm going to tell my kids. <laughs> uh, and the purpose of this was um, there was a story, or the scientist said, okay, there's a problem. We did all those atmospheric detonations in Nevada, and all of that debris drifted into the mainlands. And it was eaten by cows, and mm-hmm. those cows made milk, and then sure. the stupid children drank the milk, <sighs> and um, that milk might be full of strontium-90, 
which behaves like calcium in the body and forms ah, in the tooth. So it goes into the teeth and the bones, probably. Yeah. But you're not going like, to ask for baby bones, I guess. That would be pretty scary. No, that was a separate part of Project Sunshine that yeah, did work totally. uh, <laughs> and stole a lot of yeah. bones and other stuff. Um, so that's the cover story is that it was atmospheric detonations, but uh, there was also, like we just talked about, a ton of cadmium zinc and fp2266 yep. being straight into the air and what do you know the scientists were like these baby teeth are packed with atomic metals mm. um and john f kennedy said okay no more atmospheric testing now that we have the data we know that it's poisoning the youth of america we're not going to do that anymore and everyone says see the baby teeth was a good idea um it stopped atmospheric testing don't look into the other local stuff that was happening. But right. so kind of a strange amount of atomic stuff happening in St. Louis over the last century. Absolutely. I mean, the piece is great. We'll link to it in, in our notes. I mean, we should say that like, you know, you've done a great job trying to like kind of put all of this uh, in one place, all this information that's sort of in like mm -hmm. disparate places, right? And using Pruitt Igo as a kind of like lens to to kind of look at all of this stuff in these in these sort of disparate histories and kind of tie them together but a lot of the data and a lot of um you know really what the government was what was doing and what's of course stanford and and rancor and all these other places um what they were doing in the mid-century in places like st louis and 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 probably in numerous other cities across mm -hmm. the country um, we don't we don't know about most of it. I mean, yeah. either the records have been destroyed or they're not declassified. Or in the case of, you know, the Stanford stuff, I mean, it's just locked away. Stanford refuses to open up the archives to let people take a look at what was going on here. Yeah, there's 15 linear feet of uh, Philip Layton's documents stashed away <laughs> uh, that became classified as soon as Dr. Martino Taylor showed up to take a look at them. Like on mm. the Oh, like they immediately declassified them when yeah. she, she rolled up to the building. Mm -hmm. They were like, she's asking for what? Oh, no, we weren't supposed to have that available. Sorry. So this is just tip of the iceberg sort of stuff. I mean, yeah. there's, there's literal, you know, 15 feet of documents just relating to one guy's experiments that we don't know about. I mean, who got, God knows how many other experiments by how many other guys there were that were going on concurrently that we just have no clue about. Yeah, and I would really recommend uh, Dr. Martina Taylor's book, Behind the Fog, because she's yeah. very, very detailed about this stuff. And at the bottom of it, she's talking about how there are embedded studies in the secret embedded studies. So there's like layers of obfuscation. So there's no seal or uh, basement to it. It just mm. kind of keeps going and going. Good God. Well, the piece is fantastic, Devin. I Thank mean, you. we'll, like I, I said, I get, and I'll say it again, we'll link to it in the notes. Everyone should read it. Um, and I'm going to check out that book because I think it sounds f fascinating. This is something that I really, I don't know enough about. Mm -hmm. um, but third time, I would say it's a charm, but the other two times have been a charm as well. We got to thank Aww, you again thank you. so much for coming on. That's it's what they call St. Louis Charm City. They don't that's, call it that. That's Char that. Charm City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there they do. Oh, well, that's nice. Wait, do they actually? I was kind of guessing that, but it, it rung a bell. It is Charm City, right? Yeah, it was named after the Native Americans who were very charming. Yes. There you go. Um, 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Always a pleasure. There's only so many places like Protein Magazine that will pick up stuff like this. And then there's only so many amazing shows like True and On to come on and talk about it with. Well, we will have you on anytime. Always a pleasure. I hope not. He's always telling us about some horrible thing in St. Louis. (laughs) I hope this is it, Devin. (laughs) I hope you never write anything ever again. And God help (laughs) us if you ever move. (laughs) I'll never move. I'll I'll tell you, once a St. Louisian, always a St. Louisian. Yeah, it's true. I'm bound to the place. (laughs) All right. In the words of the great mayor of St. Louis, Adolf William Hitler. (laughs) Thank you so much, Devin. Thank you. Good God. Remind me, you know, Liz, mm. if I ever see a little sprayer up on a pole, yeah. I'm taking that thing. You know what? Actually, I'm going to fill it with fucking weed. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how crazy that would be. If yeah, they you climb these... up there. You're like, oh, they're doing it again. Hold on. Climb up there. What's that? What That's are you doing? That's me there? pouring my weed pendant. <laughs> <laughs> I crack my weed pendant in half and I pour it in. And everyone would fail. Everyone would faint. And then I'd be walking the streets all alone. Ooh, what's in your pocket? What's, what do you have on your phone? That's what you would do if everyone fainted? <laughs> you would just pickpocket everyone? I, would, no, I wouldn't. Okay. Okay, 28 days later situation, like, everyone's out on the, and you're just rifling through? What's in there? Why do you got to know? Because he's a gamer. What does that oh, mean? Oh, yeah, I got to loot them. I got a loot. They might have rare items. Yeah, they could have. They could have rare items. No, I just want to see what's going on in there. You go in my pockets, Liz. You'll be fucking appalled at what you find. Oh, I know. It's you, like no, you don't know. It's like eighteen different vapes. One jewel, jewel. Bunch of jewel pods. Okay, there are tacks for some reason. Loose. You got loose. You you just ride them loose. Uh huh. I got them loose in there. Ugh. Papers somehow you've got like precious documents. I got docs in here. Yeah, yeah, I you're like a human Mary Poppins. I got lots. She of is shit a human. In here. However, you're like the human Mary Poppins. I feel bag. like she was a witch. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's, that's not at all. Human. What Mary Mary Poppins was not a witch. Yeah, she was. How'd she do magic then? No, she doesn't do magic. Oh my god. I love you. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky in the podcast. I can't even say it. It's true and on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.